Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today is Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Rory McPherson, Head of Investment Strategy at Sigma Investment Management. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, are a type of passive fund that provide access to a variety of assets, typically for a relatively low charge. Some of the cheapest ones include those which track government bonds, and the recent launch of two new ETFs means that getting access to these assets is now even cheaper. Taha, which are these ETFs and how much do they charge? Um, so there's uh, yeah two new ETFs uh, from Invesco. So it's the Invesco UK Gilt Usits ETF and the Invesco UK Gilt 1 to 5 Years Usits ETF. Um they kind of do what they say on the tin. So the, the first one I mentioned is general guilt so across all durations. And then the second one uh, really focuses on the kind of low duration end of the, the UK government bond market. Uh, what's interesting is that they charge 0.6%, which, as, as you mentioned, makes them the cheapest um, around that kind of do what exactly what they do. Um, Invesco making inroads into the fixed income market. They launched uh, US government bonds in January doing very similar things at similar prices as well. Okay, so exactly how much cheaper are they than um, existing products? So the, the cheapest one before this was um, the Lixor Core FTSE Actuaries UK Gilts Usage ETF. So that's our that's the IC Top 50 um, ETF and that charged 0.07%. So um, you can see Invesco's uh, pricing here is quite pointed. There are other options as well. So the, so the iShares Core UK Gilts Usage ETF, that charges 0.2 but actually is the largest. And uh, that's, you know, down to iShares in-house technology and their marketing machine means that they can kind of get away with these kind of things sometimes. Okay, and does being the largest make a difference? Uh, yeah, so the fee isn't the only consideration, of course. Um, like we, the IC Top 50 ETFs picked the Lixor one because it's a good size, easily tradable, um, has a good bid offer spread and is the cheapest. But that isn't always the case. Um, you have to look at various factors when picking ETFs and not just pick the cheapest one. Now, some other bond ETFs have recently launched. Um, which are these and what do they charge? An interesting array. Um, so yeah, we had the kind of plain vanilla uh, UK government bonds I just mentioned, but we've also got the Wisdom Tree USD floating rate treasury bond ETF. Um, so that actually that tracks US government bonds, but where the coupon that the bond pays actually falls and rises, uh, kind of matching the short term interest rates in the US. So that's the generally known as the uh, the federal funds rate. Um, so that kind of hedges the risk of changes in the interest rate because then your your income kind of um, follows that down and that charges 0.15%. We've also had um, the UBS Bloomberg Barclays Tips 10-year plus ETF and that tracks uh, US government inflation linked bonds uh, that have more than 10 years left until they mature. Um, That charges 0.25%. Interesting collection of launches, very broad range, um, which is a broad range for what is generally kind of just seen as a very plain vanilla safe asset. But yes, different ways of uh, doing different things, I suppose. Okay, well, you say broad range, but they're all focused on government bonds, and government bonds aren't known for delivering high returns. So, why would you want to invest in these kinds of funds at the moment? I'll tackle each one uh, one by one. So, for like you know, for UK investors, UK government bonds, it's it's kind of a core asset. You need a kind of a a small to large allocation depending on your risk tolerance to UK government bonds because you know they do well when times are tough and there's market volatility or a market route um, you know they, they, they have a place in every diversified portfolio just providing that diversification from risk uh, assets like equities and, and property and things like that and um, so yeah turning to US treasuries the same thing really like these are safe haven assets you know these UK government uh, debt and US government debt are two of the safest um, assets you can you can get in the world uh, that gives you geographic diversification also got to consider that the um, 
US government debt currently yields more than the UK because uh, people are less worried about the US economy and they're further down their kind of interest rate cycle in terms of raising interest rates as well. Um, Rory, um, in general, are ETFs a good way to access bonds or would you say that active funds are better? Yeah, well, hi, Leonora. Thanks very much for, for having me on. I mean, I think as, as a generalisation, uh, I make the point that active funds are better and you know, that's been proven um, empirically. So you know, active funds within fixed income have tended to outperform and there are some key reasons for that. Um, I think if you are going to go passive in fixed income, then government bonds is the only area where you would want to do that. Um, and really that's because you're um, betting, if you like, on one key risk and that's interest rates going down. So interest rates go down, you make money by owning government bonds. But as a generalisation, we would say we prefer active managers within fixed income, and that's backed up by research. And really, there's some key reasons why the active managers are going to outperform. And they would be things like roughly half of the fixed income market is made up of what's called non-economic investors. And that sounds like kind of quite a fancy um, bit of jargon. But what that basically means is you've got half of the investors in the market, things like central banks, um, insurance funds, pension funds, who aren't concerned about price and are just buying up government bonds. So that means that active managers can buy and sell these bonds um, at good prices off these off these agents. Similarly, you've got bonds that mature within the passive markets, so uh, within fixed income markets. So, you know, roughly every year you'll have about 20% of the market maturing. And again, that means that active managers can telegraph what the passive managers are doing and make some extra return on top of this. So our preference is for active management. And, you know, in particular, we like the Allianz Gilt Yield Fund, um, which is playing the same sort of thing of of UK interest rates. But if you are going to own passive in fixed income because you want the lower fee, then government bonds would be the only area of the market we would think sensible. To us, it's totally not sensible to own passive exposure within things like the corporate markets, credit markets, high yield, because effectively you're making a bet on the companies which have taken on the most debt, which is fine if they're growing. If they're not growing, not so good. So is it a good time to allocate to, say, US government bonds um, like some of these ETFs we've been talking about track? We would say be cautious about allocating to US government bonds at the moment. And indeed, government bonds in general. So, you know, I'd caveat that by saying investors should always have, you know, depending on their risk target, some strategic asset allocation to government bonds because they offset the risks in equities. Um, But there's been a massive march up in government bonds over the last couple of weeks. So, you know, US bonds, UK bonds will have made about 4% over the last two or three weeks. And that's basically quite a lot more than return you'd expect from one year within these sorts of investments. So as far as we're concerned, it's probably the time to be taking some money off the table in these types of investments rather than adding. And, you know, you've seen the same price appreciation in things like the utility sector within equities, i.e. those sorts of assets that have fixed yields because market yields have gone down, they've appreciated quite a lot in value. So we would say, um, you know, now's maybe not the time to be, to be adding to these sorts of investments. Are there any other implications of uh, these uh, movements in uh, US government bond markets? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the general theme of, of the lower yields that we've seen in US government bond markets is the market suggesting that there's a pretty um, a negative outlook for inflation and growth. And that's what we've seen. So we've seen a, a huge pullback in government bond yields from October last year 
um, when US government bond yields were about 3.25% to now where they're about 2.4%. So over that period, you've made you know roughly 8% by owning US government bonds. That's a really good return th- that's been had. But the yields now are suggesting that the central bank, the Federal Reserve in this case, are going to struggle to create growth and inflation. And we've actually seen a real kind of 180, a bolt fast from Jerome Powell, who's the Fed chair, who in October last year said that they were a long way behind the curve and they were going to hike interest rates. And then in January this year, he came out and said that they were actually you know, not going to hike interest rates. And more recently, the market has started pricing interest rate cuts, which is why you've seen the big march down in government bond yields. So the government bond yields in the US are telling you that the growth picture, the inflation picture, is quite poor. Um, So 2.4% in the US, you might think, isn't too attractive. But when you compare it to, say, the UK, where you're getting 1% for a loan to the government for 10 years, or even somewhere like Germany, where you're actually having to pay them 0.07% to lend them for 10 years, then the US starts to look attractive if you take that bearish view on the world. How serious is it? Is there going to be a recession in the US? We would say no. And we don't forecast a recession in the next 12, 18 months in the US. But there are some key indicators that have started to flash up recession warnings that you have to be alive to. And that's really why bonds have made so much money over the last two or three weeks. And the big one there um, has been the yield curve. So the yield curve is really the daddy of recession indicators. So when that inverts, typically, that's a sign that the economy is slowing down and it's moving towards recession. Why is that? It's because the central bank starts hiking interest rates, which chokes off the, the growth that, that, that you're having in the in the economy. And last week, and Friday in particular, we had some key parts of the yield curve move into inversion. So, you know, that was in particular the three-month yield, i.e. The, the rate that the that banks would borrow at, was higher than the 10-year yield. So that makes it quite difficult for banks to make money because they're going to borrow in, in on the three-month part of the curve, lend out for longer time, say 10 years, and if they're not going to make money, they're not going to lend, money's not going to flow around. So that part of the yield curve has moved into inversion. It's still inverted, so that's clearly a watch point. The more kind of, I guess, reliable indicator of recession indicator, the two-year, 10-year part of the yield curve hasn't inverted. It's quite flat, though. Now, why do we say only 25%? Because we haven't seen the sort of over-exuberance of consumers and credit markets. Credit markets look quite good. Consumers aren't over-leveraged. They're still spending, so the consumer looks quite healthy. So it's only a 25% chance, we think, over the next sort of 12, 18 months. But the yield curve is one to, is one to watch there. But one thing I, w- I would say about the yield curve is... When the yield curve inverts, it's normally about 18 months until you get to recession. So that two-year, 10-year part hasn't inverted. If and when it does invert, you've probably got about 18 months until recession. And the 12 months preceding the recession is normally a very good time for stock markets because people get sucked out of the bond market because it's not paying very much into stocks. And that's when you can see those late cycle parts of the stock market. So think energy, industrials, technology, those value sectors, which have been quite quiet in this cycle, really start to do well. That said, a yield curve inversion isn't so good for banks because it can mean lending dries up. So should investors avoid bank shares or funds of substantial allocations to them? I think banks look pretty attractively valued 
particularly in the, in the UK, US banks have done have done pretty well. So, so you know they priced in a bit of the, a bit more of the recovery. But UK banks in particular look quite quite good value. So, you know, if you're going to take a slightly more optimistic view, um, and you have confidence in central banks that they're going to generate some inflation and some growth, then you know that's a that that, that that's a good thing to own. But um, you know, it's clearly that they're clearly going to struggle if the yield curve stays flat. And, and that's something that we've seen recently. What are the threats then to, um, I suppose, equities and bonds at the moment? I guess I guess the threats are that they move in the same direction. And that's, although it's been a really nice start to the year for investors, and, you know, the last quarter of last year was thoroughly miserable, this year has been fantastic you know it's been almost impossible not to make money but that's a that's a slight cause for concern in itself and you've seen bond markets go up you've seen equity markets go up so as we sit here today we've got government bond markets up about four percent for the year high yield markets up about seven percent for the year and equity markets up about ten percent so everything has gone up together and the challenge then for investors is why and when might that change and you know i would suggest that things have gone up together because you haven't it's not because company earnings have been really good it's because you've had this change in policy from central bankers so bond markets have enjoyed that because they think growth's going to be lower they think inflation's going to be lower equities have enjoyed it because they think they're going to get bailed out by the central bankers so when the market starts to focus more on corporate earnings so we have earnings season coming up in the next month or so in the US and focus back on fundamentals you might get in a situation where if data growth data improves then you'd get bonds selling off. And if earnings, company earnings, aren't particularly good and the forecast and the guidance isn't particularly strong for the first quarter, then you might get them selling off together. So it's important to have other stuff in your portfolio that's going to give you some ballast. And what sort of asset allocation alterations could you make to uh, try and um, achieve it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we think having some exposure to real assets in a portfolio makes really good sense at the moment. So, you know, things like commodities, infrastructure, some gold equities as well. Cash is also a sensible thing to have in a portfolio at the moment. And one thing we haven't talked about is how much money you might be, you might lose by owning fixed income assets. So at the moment, you're not gaining that much, really, by owning something that's paying you 1% a year if you're buying a 10-year government bond. You know, cash, you're maybe not going to make that much but you're not going to lose money. If interest rates rise, you're going to lose a significant amount of money by owning those fixed income assets. So real assets make sense, cash makes sense, some alternatives make sense, we can talk about them as well perhaps. But gold equities are one that we think is particularly attractive at the moment. And, you know, there are some key factors there that that are driving that, you know, one, we think the market for gold equities has changed slightly. So we look at, you know, who's buying and who's selling them. And gold bullion, was at the most extreme in terms of being shorted at the back end of last year as it had been in the last 17 years. So that dynamic has now changed. People are moving money back into gold. Central banks had their biggest year of buying last year since 1971. So they're pushing money back into gold. And that's really a a vote of no confidence, if you like, in perhaps the US government and you know a willingness to own gold over US treasuries. And gold and gold equities will tend to do well when real rates are negative. So if the central bankers get it right and they create some inflation and keep rates low, then gold equities will do well. And we've seen that the back end of last year, Q4, they did well. There's also been some, some M&A. So, you know, Rangold and Barrick back end of last year, we had the executive chairman of Rangold putting in $25 million of his own cash into into the new company, which has actually done, done pretty well since then. So you've had 
positive M&A, positive fund flows, and we think a dynamic that's changed which supports these types of investments. And why gold equities as opposed to, say, direct investment into gold uh, by, say, ETCs? Yeah. Exchange-traded um, commodities? For us, it's really just a more efficient way to to allocate your money. So with gold equities, you're probably going to be exposed to about two times the return of the bullion. So, you know, if we're bullish on gold, then we want to own the gold miners because we think, you know, we can have, you know, more bang for our buck and then put capital to, to, to work in other parts by um by spreading it around that way. And and in terms of, you know, what we like to own within gold miners, BlackRock Gold and General Fund is, is is one that we like and, you know, for clients that prefer a more, more sort of cheaper passive exposure, you know, the iShares product's also very good. As well on the subject of dealing with problematic markets, one area we haven't mentioned is targeted absolute return and wealth preservation funds. Um, in view of uncertainties, should investors think about holding one of these if they don't already have one? I think sort of, you know, different different strokes, different folks. Every investor, as far as we're concerned, should have a spread of, 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 of their assets across different a- asset classes and to get that sort of diversification. And that should be with a view to a targeting inflation plus a particular number, depending on how much risk they want to take. So if you know two, three, four, get above that, you're probably going to be moving all towards equity type funds. So, you know, target return funds make sense. Us at Sigma, that's kind of what we build. We build target return solutions for our clients. So we're, you know, we're not really focused on looking at target return specifically. So what the, the sort of funds that we might look at might be ones that provide us something different. So if we're packaging the product ourselves, we'll then look at, at funds which, in a sense, provide a bit of defensiveness and a bit of ballast if markets shake out. So things, you know, ones that we might like might be things like the Jupiter Absolute Return Fund run by James Clooney, um, which is reasonably bearish. You know, it's it's mm. it's going to perform well when markets sell off. And in particular, he's quite short US growth stocks, the glamour stocks, and quite long the UK value part of the market. And the Odyssey Fund would be another one as well, which is, you know, I would say deeply bearish. Tim Bond has a very bearish view on the world. And he tends to do particularly well when, when markets shake out. So these are the kind of funds which are nice to have in your portfolio. And then for more income focused funds, we like the Fulcrum um, income income strategy run by Sahel Sheikh and Nabil Abdullah, which is which is you know five percent yield and about sort of a thirty percent exposure to to equity markets. And if you think of the sort of risk that you're getting there, what kind of investors could consider these funds, and how much of a portfolio could they allocate to them? I would say that the, the, the funds I mentioned, particularly the, the first couple, you know, Jupiter and um, and the Odyssey funds would be funds that you'd want to have, you know, relatively small allocations to that are going to pay off when things go badly. So I would say no more than 5% to, 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 to these types of strategies. The core solution that we would suggest would be having a diverse fund exposure to bonds, equities, real assets, assets and, and sort of packaged together sensibly. Thank you, Rory. Some really good suggestions. Now, Taha, you've also been looking at a wealth preservation fund this week. Um, which one is this? I've been looking at the Newton Real Return Fund, uh, very very similar to what a kind of Roy was just describing. It has a, a long-term allocation to equities and corporate bonds, and it uses that to kind of drive capital growth and drive returns, but then matches this with investments in things like gold, government bonds and derivatives, kind of all sorts, and kind of uses a barbell strategy of having kind of risk on and then uh, these other assets that uh, when they combine together, they actually mitigate volatility, mitigate risk and kind of help when uh, markets are going downwards. And that 
levels out at basically doing exactly as an absolute return fund should do, which is provide a positive return in up and down markets. And has it been successful in uh, doing this? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so been the fund's been running a long time, and yeah, and it's provided the positive return um, every year this decade, and tries to provide cash plus four percent. It measures cash by using the the LIBOR rates, and wants to do this over a five year rolling period, and basically has done this um, over the long term. Recent performance has dipped a little bit, but this is actually because kind of similar to what Roy was saying about the other funds he just mentioned, this is because they've been set up for a bear market for quite some time. So they have struggled uh, while markets have been doing quite well. Volatility-wise, they actually kind of come in at about 5% a year, and that's a, a kind of a 10-year record, where if you look at global equities um, as measured by the MSCI, All Countries World Index, it's about 14% and bonds about 8%. So you can see how it falls in quite well in terms of the volatility. Five-year returns are 14.4%. Their cash plus 4% benchmark has provided 24%. Um, but again, that is down to the reasons that I mentioned earlier about not having a massive exposure to equities at this moment in time. So Newton Real Return, it's uh, obviously got fantastic past performance, but can it continue to do this? All kind of arrows point to yes, but there's definitely something we need to consider here, and that is there has been a manager change. Um, so as I said, this fund's been going a long time. It's actually been run since 2004 by a, a guy called Ian Stewart, uh, kind of a legacy manager, very well respected, been doing this a long time, actually been at uh, Newton since 1985. And uh, he stepped back from the fund at the end of last year and has been replaced by three managers uh, called Suzanne Hutchins, Andy Warwick and um, Aaron Pataki. All these managers have good experience. What's worth remembering about this kind of changing of the guard on this fund, which is, is quite significant. This is a kind of a, it's a very popular fund and Institute's a very well respected manager. But um, the macro asset allocation calls aren't necessarily always made by the three managers. There is a huge team behind uh, this fund in, in Newton. And, you know, they do lots of different types of strategies and they have a core kind of analyst base who provide a lot of data and uh, kind of reports to the managers. And also worth remembering that Ian Stewart has stepped back from the fund um, as he kind of works towards retirement. But he's still working with the managers in on the kind of macro asset allocation as well. OK, now you did mention there's been a dip in performance. Um, is, is that because... Ian Stewart's left and new managers aren't managing? No, no, definitely can't say that. It's uh, it's only been, uh, well, I think three months since these guys have kind of officially taken over. But it's worth remembering they've been working with the, uh, with Mr. Stewart for quite some time and all have uh, track records in running similar strategies in their own right. Um, no, the, the recent underperformance is very much down to the uh, the bearish stance they've taken. So they, they kind of, as I mentioned, they have kind of long equity exposure and then hedge this uh, using derivatives. So actually at the moment, the, the entire fund only has a net exposure to equities of about 24%, which again, as Roy was talking about, some of the funds he mentioned is, is quite low at this moment in time. Okay. Um, Roy, how concerned do you think investors should be when a long-standing and successful manager leaves a fund? Is it a reason to sell up and go elsewhere? I think there's no hard and fast rules and, you know, it depends why they're going. You know, in the, in the case of Ian Stewart, it's, it's someone that's been at the firm, f- firm for over 30 years and, you know, um, looking to retire. Um, that's different. I think, you know, it, so it depends why they're leaving. And I think fundamentally, when you buy a target return fund, more often than not, you should be buying it on the process. So you understand why, when and why it's going to deliver the sort of return that, that you're expecting. And if the process isn't broken, then there's no need to, to change the manager. There's a minority of funds out there where you might be buying into a star fund manager, which you know then might um, prompt you into, into making a decision. But I would say in general, buy a process, buy a team, 
and because there's so much going on with these target return funds, they rely on lots of inputs and a good team. So it's that process and sort of the infrastructure around the guy or girl running it that, that you want to make sure is still there. And um, what should investors consider and evaluate when deciding whether to stick with the fund or not? Go, go, go back to process, you know. Um, has the process changed? Um is the portfolio turning over would be a would be a sign that perhaps you know the process is changing and, and and might cause you to just be alert to the fact that you're owning something different to what you owned previously, which could be a good or a bad thing. But it's it's really these sorts of things. It's not necessarily just the person who's running it leaving. It's are the underlying investments changing? Is the process changing? Now, when a fund's managed by a team rather than an individual, as was um, or still is the case of Newton Field Return. Is a manager departure less of an issue? I would say in general, yes, but, you know, it's case by case. I suppose most importantly, I mean, how long do you think you should give new managers to prove themselves if you decide to stay in a fund where there's been a change? Yeah, again, uh, you know, sorry to to not give a, a, you know, a a definitive answer on this, but I would say there's no hard and fast rule. Um, you know, if the process hasn't changed, then I would say there's there's no reason to, to, to change. If they're turning over the portfolio, then there has to be more time given because you know that you know it's going to take you know, six to twelve months for those ideas to actually um, pay off and and, and market sort of to realise if there are any if they were good, any good. Thank you, Rory. And uh, if you're interested in wealth preservation funds, also see our interview of a manager of Ruffer Investment Company in the funds section of the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see this week's Investors Chronicle or the website for more on the recent bond ETF launches and Newton Real Return Fund. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.